Well, good morning. So I have now hit a new stage of life, I have found out. Uh, it used to be when I first got hired on here, I was the youth minister. And so we would go do events, and I was like, whoo, like, let's stay up all night. I remember we did CIY Believe in Tulsa one year. I had three kids in the room with me overnight, and we got hotel management called on us not once but twice for noise complaints because we were playing basketball in our room, and I guess the people below us were not happy about that at like 2 o'clock in the morning. So this past weekend, I went to Ozark Christian College with probably – we had about 15 that went affiliated with the church, but there were probably like maybe 1,000, 600 to 1,000 junior high students. And I just remember at 9 o'clock thinking, this is going till midnight. I am ready for bed. And I was just like, my bed sounds so good. And all these junior hires running around, and it was like, y'all got so much energy. I can't keep up with you. Like, man, where's the hole that I can crawl in and take a nap? So I am now that old fuddy-duddy, I guess, whenever it comes to hanging out with junior hires. But it was awesome at the same time because you had that many kids just singing their heart out to God. And it really was such a special moment. Um, and, and it was kind of encouraging to see them. And it's like, all right, I'm ready to go. And like, let's just go and proclaim the word to God's people. And so let's pray this morning that that be what happens, that your hearts are open to God's word and that he uses me. So I'm going to ask, um, as sometimes we do this, if you'll just take a minute and pray for your own heart, that God open it to receive his word. And then God, uh, I also, guys, just ask that you pray for me to be the vessel that God uses to speak his truth. God, you say that your word will not return without void. And so, Father God, we just pray that it be proclaimed this morning to hearts open to receive it. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. So I want to paint a picture for you real quick. If you'll just join me along in this and just kind of imagine and think as I describe this place. And so there's this nation and they are a military powerhouse. They are, when you look at all surrounding nations, they are at the forefront of it. Nobody can really threaten them at this time. But yet, even though they're a military place, they're really at a time of peace. They're not involved in any major conflicts. They're, they're just able to go about their lives pretty well. Economically, they're wealthy. Homes are abundant. They have fine furniture. And not only are homes abundant, you have a lot of people that actually have summer and winter houses. They are well off. Religiously, it's pretty much free worship. You can come and go. You can worship how you please. You can go without any really pushback. Holidays are thriving. People love to flood the places of worship during those major holidays. But there's a problem. They're not worshiping the way that God is calling them to worship. They're throwing their own rules in there, and they're kind of changing the way that God has called them. They're forsaking his laws, so much so that religion has become more activities and not relationship with God. 
It's become more, this is what we go do, not who we are in connection and relationship with, and not who we are. And then God has a message for them. He's been calling for them to repent, to turn from their ways and come back to him. But the more he calls them, the more they kind of push away. He sent famines, he sent plagues, he sent destruction. He's, they've seen their loved ones pass away. He has been calling for them to repent, but they refuse to. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was thinking about that description and everything, there's one nation that really popped in my head, and it's a nation that I live in, and it's a nation that I love. I'm not trying to, like, rag on America like it's so bad. I love this nation, but at the same time as I'm reading that, that's not who we're talking about, even though it can apply both ways. Instead, that is the nation of Israel. That is who Amos, as we are going to be in the prophecy of Amos, is prophesying towards a nation that is in that position. They are under Jeroboam II, a wealthy nation where they have winter and summer homes. They are right now the military powerhouse, pretty much. Jeroboam, he's expanded their military, and all these other empires are weak at the moment. Syria has just been destroyed. Assyria is weak because they came and destroyed Syria. Babylon hasn't risen yet. The Greeks are really not to be known with. There's, there's no military threat to them. And then they're, they're wealthy, they're powerful, they're, they're free to worship how they want. They're celebrating the new moons. They're celebrating the traditions. They are a wealthy, well-off nation. And they're thinking, we are blessed by God. We have received the favor of God. And yet God actually has a message for them. And it's not a very good one. It's a message of you need to repent or else something's coming. We see that in a lot of these prophecies that we're going through is it's a message of you think you're well off with God, you're not. And I can't help but see America being related to that where we see that we are prosperous and we are blessed and we, I mean, good grief, God has blessed us as Dave talked about in so many ways, not just spiritually in relationship with God, but also, I mean, how many of you drove here today? Anybody walk? Earl Hemphill lives probably the closest. I doubt he walked. I mean, how many of you are going to go home and you'll have something to eat, a blessing from God? How many of you actually have more than $20 in your bank account, a blessing from God? Like, he has blessed us immensely, and it's easy to start in this mindset of, well, because we have all this stuff, we must be right with God. And like Israel at this time, they think all these blessings are meaning that God favors them at a time. And it's like, actually, hold on. God's saying, you need to get your hearts right. It's not about material possessions. It's not about just religious activities. It is about you being in relationship, in connection with me, which you are not. As he said through Isaiah, these people honor me with, my, with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. And he continues on that in Amos. And he gives them a hope that if you repent, I will give you favor. But if you don't, you better look out. Amos chapter 7, verse 7 through 9. 
God shows Amos this. He has a series of visions, and this is the last one that God shows Amos. And he says, behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And so here in modern day America, we don't really use plumb lines anymore. But what a plumb line is, is it is a standard. It was a string with a weight at the bottom. And so you could go up to some vertical object and hold it next to it. And you could see if that object was truly 90 degrees from the ground. It would show if that wall's leaning a little bit. And so what God is saying is I am taking this standard and I'm holding it up to my people Israel. And I'm seeing if they are truly in line with me. And he's saying it's not. They are not. Instead, when I hold them up to my standard, it shows that they are far from me. So they better get right because destruction is coming upon the house of Jeroboam with a sword. And so that's what we see in the book and the prophecy of Amos. So for those of you who like writing, there was a whole lot of information on that sheet of paper. We won't cover it all. It's more there just for your context if you want to read through Amos, because as I was going through it, it was like, well, that's kind of confusing. And so I did a lot of research and studying and kind of paraphrased it for you there in the context. So we know what is going on when you read this passage. So hopefully you're not confused, because the Bible is not to be confusing, but clear and edifying for us. So... The prophecy of Amos, Amos chapter 1 verse 1 tells us a lot, just like Isaiah did. It tells us the author, the audience, and the date. Amos 1.1, 1, 1, the words of Amos. There is your author, who was a shepherd of Tekoa. So he, he tells us what his profession is. We don't know that on a lot of the other prophets, but Amos says, this is what I did. I was a shepherd, and more specifically, I was a sheep breeder. I bred the different sheep for the king. He says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, and also the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we have the author, who is Amos, a shepherd. His name means burden bearer, which in this time, it's not just like, what's a really good name? Oh, I think Joshua's a good name. Instead, it was, what is the meaning behind this name? And so Amos's name means burden bearer. He is tasked with the burden of going and prophesying to Israel, you guys aren't that good with God. He has a message for you, and it's not daisies and roses. It's one of judgment. So he is a burden bearer. The audience, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the dating for it is, as it said, the reign of Uzziah in the reign of Jeroboam II, or the second, and two years before the earthquake. Now, if you read in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, it says that there was a earthquake. He says, you all are going to flee as you did in the days of Uzziah when the earthquake happened. 
And so we actually have dating Joseph, Josephus, who was like a, a Jewish historian during the first century. He writes the Jewish history book, and he says in antiquity of the Jews, he says in the meantime, this is as Uzziah enters into the temple, he gets prideful, he grabs a scepter because he's about to burn the incense, and all the priests are like, Uzziah, that's not for you to do. That is for the priests, the Levites to do. God has tasked them with that. And he says, I don't care, I'm doing it myself. And he raises it in anger and leprosy comes upon him. And so Josephus says, in the meantime, a great earthquake shook the ground and a rent was made in the temple and the bright rays of the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face insomuch that leprosy seized upon him immediately. And so we're kind of getting some context as to when this is being written. And that earthquake happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And so we know that kind of around there, if that's the earthquake that we're being talked about, if that's when it happened, it was two years before that, that Amos is writing. So again, why is that important? Because if you're like me and you read these prophecies and you read them chronologically, this one doesn't really fit. But if you know the context of what's going on, man, this prophecy makes sense. If you understand that during the reign of Jeroboam II, they are free and they are thinking we are good and we are able to go worship God how we please. And there's no threat coming upon us. And as Amos is saying, actually, this nation is going to come and drive you away. And they're like, that's not going to happen. We're the greatest military power there is. And yet in 30 years, Assyria comes to power. And so if Amos is written around 760 BC, 722 BC, so more like 40 years, Israel is no longer a nation. As Assyria has come in and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. And so God saying judgment is coming, they're thinking, ha, that's not going to happen. We're too strong for that. And God's saying, actually, it is. And it's going to come in a lot of y'all's lifetime, unless he gives them the message of repent. And that's what the message is. He is prophesying destruction is coming upon the people in Jerusalem and Israel and judgment is coming. Those are like the first eight chapters of it. Actually, the first nine which it's a, a book of nine or a prophecy of nine chapters. The first couple chapters, he's prophesying around the surrounding nations. There's like seven of them where it's like Damascus and it's like Tekka and it's, it's these other nations. And he's saying, these are the things that I have against you and what you've done. And Israel would hear that and they'd be like, yeah, those people deserve God's judgment. Those people are the ones that are going against God, not us, Israel. We are God's chosen people. We are favored by God. We are loved by God. And so he spends like two chapters doing that. And then he turns it and he says, oh, but Israel, Israel, my people whom I love, this is what I have against you. I have taken the plumb line and I have held you against my perfect standard and you have failed. And unless you repent, destruction is coming. Because one of the things that we see in a lot of these prophets is this term called the day of the Lord, which what they took was the day of God coming and executing his judgment upon the nations. The great day of the Lord, when God is going to leash his wrath upon all his enemies. And Israel looked forward to that. 
They were like, yeah, we're ready for the day of the Lord. He promised us the Messiah. He promised us that we were going to be able to be free from all oppression, that we were going to reign and rule. He said the day of the Lord is coming, and man, we're ready. Let's get the popcorn ready, pop open our chairs. Let's watch his wrath come upon them. And he actually says in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, he says, woe to you. He's now talking to Israel. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You want it to come. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Israel, you think it's going to be a great time for you? It's not. It is going to be a time of God's judgment. I feel like if I were to paraphrase the entire message of Amos for you in like one sentence, it was, you better get right with the Lord because judgment is coming. You better get right with God because judgment is coming. He's saying, these are the things that I have against you. Kind of like he does in the other prophets. He plays the uh, kind of the prosecutor. He says, these are the crimes that you have committed. And then he also plays the jury in saying, you have been found guilty. And then he plays the judge in saying, this is your punishment. This is what you are going to have to experience because of it. And now, don't think, kind of like Israel, I feel like they fell in this trap. Well, we're Israelites. Well, we do the religious services. Well, we give the tithe and we go up and we offer the sacrifice and we honor the, the holidays and the festivities and, and the feasts. God wouldn't be mad at us. And I hear a lot of America in that statement too. Oh, well, we're Americans. Not only that, maybe we're Republicans because we're the ones favored by God. Or maybe we're Democrats because we're the ones favored by God. Or maybe it's because we belong to this denomination or that denomination or because we went Christmas and Easter and you're here today, congratulations. And you know, we must be good with God because my bank account is increasing and I have no debt and I have no stress in my life and I'm able to live however I want. I hear America say that a lot. Now here's the problem that I hear with that as well. I believe there, there's this reoccurring phrase that if you, you ask a lot of uh, just, I'll, I'll say, uh, stereotypical American Christians, I pray we don't have them in here, that the, if you would ask them, hey, who's Jesus? You would get this statement. Well, I believe, I believe that God would not send somebody to hell just because they broke one of his laws. I believe that God would not actually try and rob me of my happiness. And so if it's love, it's love. And God has no problem with that. I believe. I heard it. I, I read it. I didn't hear it. I read it in a book recently. And I thought it was a great example of this. That the author, his name is John Bevere. I've mentioned his book before, The Awe of God. Um, shameless plug. I've been reading it a lot. But he's talking about, he goes to this conference in Hawaii. And he's sitting there and he's, he's got some time before his room's ready for him. And so he goes and he sits by the pool. And this woman, same situation, comes, sits by the pool. They strike up a conversation. She says, so what do you do for a living? And he says, well, I'm a pastor. And she was like, oh, let me tell you all about Jesus. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. And so she starts telling him about Jesus. But he, he starts to notice this 
reoccurring statement. Well, I, I just believe Jesus is like this. I believe Jesus is like that. I, I believe. And as he's hearing it, he's realizing that's not who Jesus tells us he is. Her belief of Jesus does not line up with the truth about Jesus. And so he says a quick little prayer, and he's just like, Holy Spirit, like, what should I do? And so finally, he sees a guy sitting across in the pool, and he's like, can I tell you about John over there? And she's like, well, that's odd that you know that guy. Yeah, tell me about him. And he's like, well, that's, that's John. Um, he, he lives a strict vegan diet. He dreams to be a U.S. Olympic water polo player. He works out in the pool and the gym three hours a day. He enjoys pickleball, skydiving, and painting. He married a woman over there by the hot tub, Beth. She's 10 years younger than him. And she hears all of that, and she's like, whoa, that, that, how do you know him? Does he go to the conference with you? No. Well, does he attend your church? Have you met him before? No, I've never actually met him in my life. And she's just like, well, what in the world is going on? And he says, well, that's what I believe about him. We can believe something, but if it does not line up with what God's word says, it is not truth. Jesus tells us in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so when you take what you believe and line it up with the Bible, the problem we have a lot of times is we'll read something in the Bible and be like, eh, I don't like that. So let's rip it out and throw it away. I don't need that part. Well, God tells us what truth is. It's his word. And what Israel at this time has a problem with is they are not living according to God's truth. They're living maybe what they believe. I believe that because we honor these things, we're right with God. I believe that because we are at a time of peace, we're right with God. But God is bringing the truth to them by saying, you're not right. You're not good. You need to repent. And now maybe you're hearing this and you're like, man, Amos, that's a message America needs to hear. Like repent before it's too late. I want to read for you a passage real quick. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So before we're sitting here saying, oh yeah, that's a message for everybody out there. I'm going to go home, share this on Facebook. I know y'all don't do that, but whatever. It's like, but I'm, I'm going to recommend this. I'm going to tell people, you should really read Amos because you're going to hell. Before we do that, we need to check our heart check ourselves with what God is telling us as his people. For judgment begins with the household of God. Before I can go to anybody else and tell them, you need to get right with God, you need to start living your life right for God, I need to make sure I'm living right with God. Matthew chapter 7 gives us a parable about that. Not really a parable, an analogy. Jesus says, why is it that you look at the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye when you yourself have a plank in your own eye? And then he says, first, check your own heart. First, make sure you remove the sin out of your own life. Oh, but Andy, it's just a little anger issue. It's just a little resentment. It's just a little unforgiveness. It's just a little whatever it is. I know God doesn't like it. But it's just how it is. I, 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 it's me. We need to get right with God. And then we can go to other people. And we can say to them, this is what God is calling for you to do. 
We, we have in our mind that we're not supposed to call anybody out on anything. Paul actually tells us, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that I don't judge those outside the church, but those inside the church, that we are to hold one another in, accountable. But then he also does say, don't just sit there and sit back and be like, oh God, yeah, whatever, you're good with God. Instead, we're called to be like Amos, that we are called to go and say, hey, God has a standard. If you want to know what that standard is, read the first five books of the Bible. You find it pretty clearly in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. This is what God is calling you to be like. Have you ever done that? I mean, you don't even have to know the Big Ten or the Big 600. First, you, oh my goodness, you don't have to know all 600. You know the Big Ten. Honor the Lord your God with all your heart. Nope, that's not even one of them, but it, it's pretty much the logistic of it. That you are to have no other gods before me. Don't misuse the Lord's name in vain. Don't bow down to idols. Honor, see, there it is. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't steal, don't lie, don't kill, don't covet. And look it up. There's another one. There'll be a test on it next week. I don't know what it is right now off the top of my head. It's one of those. Don't kill, don't steal, don't covet. Yeah, don't commit adultery. Big one. Yeah. And so... How many of you have ever done that? And then you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And it's like, oh, I've done a good job. I'm like the rich young ruler. I've never done any of those. I haven't actually ever killed somebody. Last I checked. I, I, I've lied, yeah, I've done that. I haven't, I haven't committed adultery, though. And Jesus is like, well, actually, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you have looked at a woman or a man with lustful intent in your heart, you are guilty of committing adultery. We see right away the standard that God has set is perfection and holiness. He actually says in Matthew to be holy as he is holy. That's Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And yet when we look at that standard, we fall short very quick. And so as Isaiah told us last week, the problem is, that our sin separates us from God. Isaiah says that your sin has driven you away from God, and that's the problem that we see in Amos. Their sin has driven them away from God, and what they think is that because they honor the traditions, they honor the feast, because they sacrifice and they tithe and they are in a good position right now, it means they're right with God. And that's the problem that we have. We can never be right with God on our own. We need an intermediary. We need somebody to close that gap for us because no matter how hard we try, we dig the hole deeper instead of ever climbing out on our own. And so we need somebody to come and cross the chasm for us. And that is what Jesus did for us. He is the only hope that we have in restoration. And so whenever Amos is saying, you need to repent, even that without the sacrifice of Jesus would not help us. We need Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.19 that if Christ has only died and is not risen from the dead, then we are above all people to be pitied because we are still in our sins. But he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so we have this hope of being restored with God. That's the message that Amos says. He says to repent and to turn back. And the way we do that is by going to the cross. 
Because the cross shows me I could not save myself, no matter how hard I tried. I could not, if Galatians tells us that if I were able to work hard enough, if my flesh could earn me right standing with God, it therefore would nullify the grace of God. It therefore would nullify the cross. It would mean that Christ died for no reason. Why did he go through the agony, the pain, the suffering that he did if there was some other way? Because I don't know if you would ask me and you'd be like, Andy, you have two options. You can either tell these people that they can work hard enough to make it to heaven, or you can hang suffering while your back is ripped open for like six hours and just bleed out. And it's going to be the most excruciating thing, but there is another way. I'm choosing the other way. I love y'all. I'm not going out like that. Not if there's another way, but there is no other way. Jesus is the only way, the cross that he paid, the death that he died. He says, this is the only way to be restored to me. So when we, when we repent, we see that the standard, the plumb line is off in our lives. That we are not living according to that standard that God has set. And so we turn to the cross and we entrust in its work. And what we are told is that when we place our faith in the cross, that Jesus is the only way to be right with God. He is the only hope for our restoration. When we see that and place our faith in that, he says, I will give you the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15 and 16 talks about the helper will come and he will convict us and he will guide us. And Galatians 5 tells us that we are to submit and be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by the flesh, for the flesh is against the works of God and the works of the Spirit. And then he says, these are the things that will come out of you. When you surrender to the Spirit, you'll have love, you'll have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He says, as you surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will guide you and you will start to produce the fruit of the Spirit. But what God is saying, and we see this message repeated in the prophecy of Amos, is he is saying, hey, yes, there is a message for the world, but judgment begins with the church. So church, you are called to seek me and live. That's in Amos chapter five, verse four. He says, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Amos chapter five, verse six, seek the Lord and live. Amos chapter five, verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. You see, he's saying judgment is coming upon Israel. They are called to repent and turn back to God, but they refuse to. And so that judgment and that destruction came within four decades. He was measuring them. He said, these are your crimes. Here's the standard. This is the law. You failed. This is your crime. This is your punishment. But he says to us today, it's, it's not too late. He says, you can still turn back. You can still seek me and live. Because for Israel... There wasn't really a way for that judgment to be averted. He said, destruction is coming. Repent, seek me and live. They refused to. And so they were wiped out. But at the end of Amos, there is hope because he says there is gonna be a remnant. There's going to be a group that will survive that I will bring back. But for us today, he's saying the exact same thing. 
He's saying, seek me and live. Repent of your ways. Turn back to me from your wickedness and you will live. Or else judgment is coming. But what if there's a way for that judgment to be averted? What if there was this way that we did not have to experience the wrath of God? And there is. But it's not by you sitting there and being like, okay, from this moment on, I'm keeping all 10 commandments and I'll, I'll even do my best to keep all 600. It's not by saying I'm gonna be 100% a tender from here on out. Lofty goal. It's not I'm gonna memorize all of scripture. There's only one way that that judgment can be averted. And that is through the work of Christ on the cross. John 3, 16, we're told God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that nobody may perish. Whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the judgment, that's the wrath, but instead have eternal life. He doesn't say so that you can work harder and be better. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 8, 32, he says, God did not spare his own son. He gave him to us so that we can avoid the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 tells us that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And then God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 through Paul, he says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. He took on our sin so that we could take on his righteousness. Romans chapter five tells us it was before we even started working for God, before we even became friends with God, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Showing Jesus makes the first move towards us. All we do is we respond in faith. We repent of our ways. We turn back to him. We seek him and live. And he says, if you seek me, you will find me. Amos ends. He gives that long message of judgment. Destruction is coming. But he ends with that glimmer of hope that there will be that remnant that will be saved. That remnant, just like us, there's only one way they'll be saved. And that's through the work of Christ on the cross. It's not through your abilities. It's through Ephesians actually tells us, uh, we'll start in Romans chapter 11. It says, so at the present time, there is a remnant. How are they chosen? By their works, by their ethnicity, by their affiliation? No, they're chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. Ephesians 2, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. That's how you're saved. It's through placing your faith in Christ and then you live out of that. Knowing that we're saved, that's what Paul says. Romans 1 through Romans 11, Paul is laying out the gospel of Jesus. This is how you were, this is what Christ did. And then he says, because of what Christ did, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the ways of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what do you do? You see your depravity. That means you see there's nothing in you that can save yourself. You look to the cross and see it's only through the cross that I can be saved. And then Paul says, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice every single day. I die to self so that I can live to Christ. I follow after him by not living the ways of this world, but by seeing what his word says and living according to his promises. He says, you're saved at the moment of placing your faith, but then you allow the spirit to work through you. So Father God, I pray that that's what we do. God, that there be those of us here who have been Saved for years, God. They gave their life to you as a young child probably, and God, you're just calling us to continue to live for you, to not be conformed to the ways of this world. And throughout your word, you tell us, stand firm on your truth, because that's what the world wants to do, to get us to live like them, to conform to their ways. But God, may we, as we just surrender everything over to you, be transformed by the renewal of your mind to your word and your truth. God, help us check our hearts to see if there be any fault in it. And may we just give that over to you. And then God, if there be anybody here today who has not surrendered to you, that that they are relying on their own works, their own abilities, and and they're just thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm good. God, convict them. Convict them that they're not right with you. That it's only through the blood of Jesus that they can have that restored relationship with you and then just transform their hearts. So God, I pray that your spirit just fill our hearts to help us respond however you're calling us to. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.